This is the East Pass Podcast. I'm Rachel Staples, and before you get into this episode, there are a few things that I wanted to mention. Aside from being able to sit down and share some legendary fishing stories from over the years, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast was to be able to use it as a way to discuss what's going on with fisheries management. In this episode, I sat down with Captain Jim Green, who does a great job with keeping up with everything that's in the works and representing our fleet with the Gulf Council and beyond. Going forward, we plan to do episodes periodically to talk about updates and keep everyone in the loop. But before we started doing those, we thought it would be helpful to sit down and discuss a little bit about the Magnuson-Stevens Act and the history of fisheries management in the Gulf. And that's what this episode is. Another thing I wanted to note before you listen is that this episode was recorded immediately prior to the ruling that shut down the Seafire Data Collection Program, which was the mandatory reporting system for the for-hire fishing industry in the Gulf. I guess that in and of itself is a testament to the fact that things are always changing. Anyways, as always, thanks for listening, and I hope you find these episodes informational and beneficial. The water's beautiful and the birds are working. We got a blue, it's gonna be over a thousand pounds, I'll guarantee you. Poof, here comes this monster out of the Gulf, you know. That's the meanest fight fish I think I've ever fought. It gets in your blood. It's like uh, deer hunting or turkey hunting. It's like you live for it. Golly, I, chances we need back in them days, we're lucky to be here. Thanks for tuning into the East Pass podcast. I'm Rachel Staples, and I'm sitting here with Captain Jim Green. Uh, he is a local captain here in Destin, Florida. He runs a boat called the American Spirit, and uh, he is also the president of the Destin Charter Boat Association. Uh, he's very involved with the Gulf Council. Hearing us out here, getting opinions and going there and keeping us up to date on everything. Uh, also the Charter Fishermen's Association. That's correct. And he is a second generation fisherman, is that right? Third. Third generation fisherman. Yep. Um, so I imagine you've grown up being pretty involved with things, being familiar with the processes. It's all going down. And how long have you been kind of working with the Gulf Council and involved in all that? Uh, I started fishing when I was 10, <clears throat> whenever I uh, was about 25, 26 is when uh, Captain Mike Eller took me to my first Gulf Council meeting. So uh, that was 06, 07. Okay. And uh, shortly after that, I got to be vice president of the Destin Charter Boat Association. And now I believe we're in year four of uh, me being the president of it. So that's roughly about 15 years, okay. 15, 16 years. Yeah, that's that's a big chunk of time. Um, before we get too deep involved, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about why I wanted to do this podcast and kind of some of the ideas for it. Um, there's a lot involved in fisheries, and it really hasn't been – that long since things were completely different from how they are now um the magnuson stevens act was passed in you know 1976 and before that fisheries looked completely different than they do now um the the limits the seasons all that stuff was not like it is now there were uh foreign fishing fleets fishing you know not that far offshore um and there's still guys fishing today who were fishing then so they've really they've been here through the, the progression of all of it and i think that you know all these stories hearing them out hearing how things work 
all that can paint a bigger picture for where we've been, where we are, where we're going. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's some guys who have been here for, for it all. There's some guys who are familiar with how it's all gone down. And then there's, there's also people that fish that may have no idea that there were things not that long ago were completely different than how they are. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, changed over the last 20 to 30 years. And we're act- it's actually kind of a blessing that we are in this generation because we can tap those older folks that have been in the fishery long before we were here and, uh, and get that information. Um, it has changed dramatically. Um, the reauthorization of the Magnuson Stevens Act put things on a lot tighter uh, scale when it came to uh, accept- acceptable catch levels and harvest levels and um, and really fine-tuning what uh, data was used to measure those metrics. It's... Uh, it has. When I was a kid, uh, twelve. If you caught a twelve-inch red snapper, that was great. Right. You know, <laughs> there was there was such a. Uh, it was needed at the time, and there was such a depletion in the in the eighties and nineties of the fishery, just because there wasn't these limits and these these catch limits. And uh, now we're ushering in new data collection programs and stuff like that. So, um, I I. I I'm really happy that you're doing this because it gives us an opportunity to reach out to people that don't have time to sit down and read an email. And, you know, when you try to explain things in text, it it very much gets cumbersome and people lose sight of what you're trying to get at just by trying to explain the whole situation. So being able to have a conversation about it is a, is a lot better way to educate people and to you know outreach and and let them learn the process it was it was very arduous in the beginning because everything was on paper there what you know the there was stuff on the internet but it just it, the tools of the internet weren't utilized like they are today and uh it was a lot of reading i read more after the the first couple of years of going to gulf council meetings i was reading more than i ever did in college <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of information out there for sure <laughs> yeah and it's always changing it's it's always new stuff is coming out and um, I think one of the good things about you know this platform is you can keep digging into it, keep getting more information out there. Um, and as it evolves, you know when new stuff comes out, get that out there. Um, get get different points of view as well. Um, but yeah, it does seem like it's changed, especially like you were saying in the last twenty or thirty years. Because I think when when they first started this, it was kind of a it, the MSA when they first passed it in 1976 was not as nailed down as it is today it was a lot more brief they were focusing on you know we need to to get foreign fisheries out of our waters we might want to expand our fishery conservation zone make it out to 200 nautical miles where we manage the fish in there uh but it seemed to kind of just be a plan that a plan to make a plan yeah it was more excuse me it was more of monitoring fishing trends and trying to get a grasp as you said on you know illegal fishing and and overfishing and kind of they passed it and and they really had to develop what it was they passed they had a good vision but you know back in the 80s a lot of the data systems that were being used weren't really used to manage a fishery it was more trying to develop a, a model that showed fishing trends and 
uh, where problems could start to occur and where they're, you know, and, and start pattering things. It wasn't until really the late 90s, early 2000s that we realized that that was a, you know, it was not a, it was not a system uh, that was formidable to what, what most of them were trying to do with it, which was manage individual fisheries. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely takes some turns. It's, we've done some good, it's done some good things. It's done some bad things. Uh, that's what led to the reauthorization. They, when they reauthorized it in 2006, they added catch levels and accountability measures and really put some teeth in the act to where when fisheries were falling off a cliff, they could put the brakes on it. And, you know, that's, um, it, it was tough. It was tough whenever they did because nobody really understood exactly what all it meant. And, um, you know, it took some diving into, and, the, and that at that time there was a lot of there was a lot of controversy between the government and the fishermen because they felt like they were you know getting targeted and they were getting their catches limited, and uh, which is what it was it was developed for. It was to protect the the resource, and uh, we were we were very efficient at, at killing fish, you know. So right. so by by having that protection put in place. And being able to then hold the fishery as a whole accountable to what was being taken, it made us better stewards. We didn't see it at the time, and nobody quite understood that. But as time has developed, we've realized that it really was better for the fishery as we see some of these fisheries come back. Yeah, it seemed to to make some changes. And, you know, you've got your commercial sector and your recreational sector. Um, You know, obviously with Red Snapper, Amendment 40, there was some sector separation there but for all intents and purposes you've got when it was reauthorized your commercial and your recreational sector and um it, it did make some substantial changes especially whenever you know like 2007 you look at the ifq program coming in mm-hmm. uh prior to that they would give the i think it was what 1991 or 1992 was the first time that the commercial fishermen ever saw a closure in their fishing um you know they give them an allotted amount they were allowed to catch and it kind of created like a derby system where okay well we can only catch this much we need to go out there and catch it as fast as we can um and then you know they would have to close the fishery down so they'd say well uh you know we'll give you 10 or 15 days a month to do it and um anyway it created this system where people are going out there they're fishing in in situations they should not be fishing in going out there when maybe it's a little bit too rough um and i don't know that they meant to create that issue it was just kind of a side effect of trying to manage how much was caught so whenever you know 2007 they started putting things in place like ifqs um that they could leave the fishery open year round and people could catch their allotted amount whenever they wanted to whenever they did create the the derby system where you could fish the first 10 days of each month it uh it did i participated in that some when i was younger and you know it didn't matter what it was it was you had a trip limit and you had 10 days and you basically were burning the midnight oil and you were going back and forth it fatigued the the operators it fatigued the fishermen they were going out in conditions that were unsafe and that's kind of what led to the ifq system they they said hey why don't you just give us our fish that we're catching and let us go catch them when we when we can and and when it's safe you know because 
it also put other people at disadvantages. You know, in, in the Western Gulf, in the, in the spring and summer, the weather over there is horrible. So you have people over here in the Eastern Gulf fishing when the weather's good. And just because of your geographic location, it made it really dangerous because they weren't going to miss out on their piece of the pie. So, you know, red snapper has been a hot button issue for the Gulf Council since its inception. And, um, you know, the IFQ program has really elevated not just um, the, the, the fishermen itself and their safety, but it's also elevated uh, the, the biological aspect of the fishery because they, instead of just going in there and taking a big swath of fish at one time, they were slowly removing the fish from the fishery. It left more biomass in the water to where when uh, the fish did spawn, you didn't have big chunks taken out at a time, you know. So it's uh, the IFQ system, while hated by some, is actually probably the single best thing that's ever happened to the red snapper fishery from a biological aspect. Uh, Social economic aspect, people can debate that all day. But uh, biologically, having a set amount of fish and then the, the, the nature of the commercial fishermen's work, you know, they get paid by the pound, so there's already a natural aspect of the data collection that's built into their business model. Every time they drag a fish across a scale, it's accounted for by the fishermen, then by the fish by the fish house, and then NOAA goes in and they compare those two, and that's what validates the data. So, you know, they had their their way of doing business uh, actually fit right in with oncoming data collection. And actually was a model, you know, we in the charter industry, we kept saying, you know, not so much that we wanted IFQ at that time, but we wanted a data collection system since that, that's been a mantra since long before I ever went to a Gulf Council. So I think that the IFQ and, and where it went was, was a really good thing for the fishery biologically. So um, anyone who's not familiar with the IFQ system, uh, so the way red snapper work is, what, 51% of the quota for the year goes to commercial fishermen. That's correct. So they get X amount of pounds, um, and each commercial fisherman gets his basically piece of the pie, his percentage. It's based on historical catch. So when they first allotted the IFQ for everyone, it was based on how much you had caught historically. If you had gone out there and caught, you know, 2% of the commercial fish for the year, then you get 2% of that 51% of the fish. Uh, there's, when they first handed them out, there was like class, there was two classes. The cl- yes. So it, it does originate, it goes a little farther back. So they, it, like, there was a, and I don't know what it was exactly, but there was a metric that puts you either in class A or class B. And class A was 2,000 pounds and class B was 200 pounds right. of fish. And that's where you had a lot of people come in and start. It, it was it's a commodity. It's a share, so you could trade, sell, lease, whatever you wanted to do. And a lot of people that had the smaller fish, it became a. It wasn't you know they did, of course if they got the smaller permit then they were not fully active. And I say they were active in the fishery, but they weren't fully involved with it. It wasn't their full time thing. So a lot of those people that got those two hundred pound. Uh, quotas were basically it was to cover their bycatch so if if we back up a little bit pre-ifq uh early 90s they went to assigning 2,000 pound trip tickets and 200 pound trip tickets for red snapper 
Um, and it was based off historical catches. Um, I think if you had shown, it was something like in the two of the past three previous years, if you had caught at least 5,000 pounds of red snapper, then you got a 2,000 pound trip ticket. If you were a commercial fisherman and you hadn't done that, but you were interested, then you could get a 200 pound trip ticket. Um, and the way this worked is if, if you have the 2,000 pound trip ticket, when you go commercial fishing, you can catch 2,000 pounds red snapper. If you have the 200 pound one, that's like Captain Jim was saying, it covers your bycatch basically. Um, so they first assign these to these commercial fishermen. They get 2,000 pounds or 200 pound trip tickets. Um, eventually it turned into something I believe that became transferable, but mm -hmm. initially it was just for the captain. Um, and then mid-90s I, I think maybe with the sustainable fisheries act they were trying as early as then to implement an ifq system but they couldn't all get on the same page couldn't make it work yeah it, well and it was a very i mean it was it was it was very foreign to everybody not you know we were we were coming from a time where it was open season on everything oh, yeah. in all actuality they 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 were adding a sustainability to our business it just took us adapting you know and as fishermen and and mariners that's what you do every day is you adapt to your situation and uh some people could not handle that and some people develop their business model really well things have definitely evolved from then to now with you know the way people are running businesses and just the whole view on all of it um but yeah talking to about the the trip tickets i think it eventually became known as like class one and class two and when they did the ifq I'm sure this is controversial, but they, they took a vote, um, and the people who were able to vote were the people with the 2,000-pound trip tickets. Well, um, and, and, you know, that wasn't taken lightly. It wasn't like they were trying to be singled out, but in, in essence, if you, had, if you had 100 people that were partially in the fishery and did a little bit of it, and then you had 20 people, and I'm just using these numbers as an example, that that's what they made their business on. That, that was their business model. It was mainly to add in... Uh, to to identify the people who were participating the most in the fishery <clears throat> and if you know you, do, you there it was a weighted vote and and in that in that essence and in that lack of education of and i don't want to say lack of education in that unknown of what they were coming from and to what they were going to i i don't think that it was wrong to take a weighted vote because you had people that were you know, there. I would not want somebody that runs a charter boat or a head boat ten days out of the summer to be taking a vote on what I do every single day of my life. So, you know, I think there was a. It was controversial, but you know, I, it, I, I don't believe that it was wrong. I think that it had a lot of merit to it in the way it was thoughtful in the way they did it. Whether you're on the wrong side of that vote or not right it, it would going back and being objective with it, it it was definitely a thoughtful way of making sure that the people who dedicated their time effort and vessel to that fishery had a good say in their fishery which is what <clears throat> the regional councils set up by magnus and stevens is all about is having regional input in your fishery instead of a bureaucrat from washington dc weighing in on what's going on in the gulf so when when the msa was passed um in the 1970s that is one of the the big things that it did is it divided the u.s into eight regional councils um because you know fisheries on the west coast and the east coast don't have the same situations they don't need to be managed the same uh, down here in the gulf we're in a completely different situation than they are in alaska um so we have the gulf council 
that manages our fisheries down here. Um, they develop fishery management plans uh, for different species. You've got, you know, reef fish, coastal migratory pelagics, shrimp, you know, there's what, eight or nine different yeah. different ones. So over time they were developing these fishery management plans. When it first passed, they were trying to, to gather data. I think they had been gathering commercial data as early as maybe like the 1950s or for a few decades some um but they needed to get more of that and i don't think any recreational data was being gathered at that point uh yeah I, i'm not sure exactly the date when it started but it, it was definitely in the 90s that they you know they were taking surveys and they were sampling people at the dock and they were asking questions of boat ramps and stuff but all that was kind of um inconclusive of what they were trying to get at again they were trying to figure it out just as much as we were and uh, it was uh, like I said that that data that they were collecting was more to summarize and and to see a trend rather than you know offer catch advice on exactly how many fish should be taken out of the fishery they were still trying to understand it we're still trying to understand you know they have limited knowledge of amberjack and right now they're doing uh, Congress has devoted money to to study the greater amberjack uh, because it's on its we're now entering we're now developing at the Gulf Council level its third rebuilding plan in like 12 years because the other ones failed they're restarting all, yeah, all they got they got well they got to restart over because right. you know they would try different things and at first they were trying they were erring on the side of caution when they do this stuff they don't want to make big drastic changes because that's hard to quantify in their in their data sets you know it'd be hard to change drastically change the management of a fishery and then when that data comes in trying to quantify that with the last 10 or 20 years of data and then trying to develop a way to make them talk to each other and work together and you know what led to that if, if you change the size limit bag limit season length you're changing the effort that's applied to the fishery you're changing the average weight that's harvested you know i mean there's so many different things and it's really tough for scientists to quantify and and be able to have those things mesh together and actually be apples and apples instead of apples and oranges right. so they they err on the side of caution i mean that's that's one thing that the magnus and stevens act does that a lot of people hate including myself at times is that it's glacially slow but it's glacially slow and it has these requirements so that you don't have knee-jerk reactions to things to where you know you don't you know, oh we saw a huge abundance of fish well in this data set you know this stock assessment said we have double the fish we thought well just because you have double the fish doesn't mean you catch you get to catch double the harvest you know what are those fish are those fish juveniles are they teenagers did y'all find a bunch of fish that were, you know, 20 pound red snappers that are breeding way more than you thought, you know, or is it a bunch of three pound snappers that are hardly producing eggs and quality eggs for the fishery to rebound? So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes in there, but it, it it's, it can be painful like anything in government. <laughs> it can be extremely painful to, to watch and be a part of the process, but at the same time, you respect the fact that nobody can come in there with one political view or another or one agenda or another and not wreak havoc on a system that we make our livelihood off of. And that is true. I mean, I think it seems like 
in the beginning, you know, they didn't even necessarily know the breeding age of a lot of these fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lifespan, like all of that took a while to compile. I think I, I read one thing that was saying that the early 90s, I think they were like, uh, the lifespan of a red snapper is 13 years. And then like five years later, they're like, no, it's 53 years, you know? Yeah. So they're, they're, they're learning, they're nailing it down. And like you were saying, you can't change every variable and equation at the same time. You've got to see what you're working with and and there are checks and balances i guess to to get you from point a to point b well and i think that you know there's definitely room for improvement i don't think it's a perfect system but i think that it it perfectly allows all stakeholders to have a chance and a say in what's going on you know a lot of the stuff we a lot of fishermen get discouraged when they go to the gulf council and they give testimony because they don't see any action off of it or they don't see any immediate action, but really it's building a record when you're giving this testimony. And, you know, I've had it more happen more than once that, you know, they'd be like, Oh, you, you've been telling, you've been coming here for a couple of years talking about this, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you know, like, but it's, they, they can't just take anecdotal evidence of our on the water assessment. Cause it's, we're in one microcosm of 660,000 square miles of Gulf of Mexico but that it can show patterns and it's important to maintain that dialogue with them because if you do not continue to be part of the discussion then you'll be part of the menu and and you can't get mad if you're not a part of it so a lot of fishermen would get discouraged given testimony at Gulf council because you didn't see a direct action to it and in this world of instant gratification you know it's really tough to like say just sit back and relax you know it, it, it'll help it'll help but i think that it it's a system that very much helps the fishermen. It gives the fishermen more of a voice than they ever than they ever had in the beginning or before. And I think that we in the last 10, 15 years have realized that these people aren't our enemy. You know, of course, some have a you know everybody has agendas, but you know, it's not like they want to be called all these names and deliver the bad news of we're cutting your season down or you know we're increasing your size limit. It's that their job, their job is, they're tasked with uh, maintaining and rebuilding and, and maintaining a fishery that's robust. And that's not easy to do. And I think that, uh, I think it's important that we have those systems of checks and balances so we don't have someone come in and say, oh, that data is bad, you know, open up the fishery. Because if private, if private wrecks go out there and they, and, we all go out there and destroy the fishery they go play golf on the weekend i still have a mortgage to pay so you know you got to look at from every stakeholder's perspective and i think that's what msa really does well even people that live in iowa and wyoming that's their fishery too it's the nation's resource so they might come down twice in their lifetime to fish in the gulf they might not ever they might buy their fish from a from a fish market somewhere up there or a restaurant when they come on vacation but they still have the right to access that fishery and the government has a responsibility to maintain that fishery in a sustainable way so the speaking of you know the process in the gulf council and and all that it's what 17 voting members is that right are on the gulf council and 11 of them are there have to be representatives i think from each state but 11 of them are just I don't want to say regular people, but they're kind of like voted in and elected. And yeah, and yeah. So there's the regional administrator has a vote, 
and then uh, there's the five Gulf states due to the charter that was set up when the Gulf when they agreed to be a part of it you know when it all passed was that basically there's a representative from every state agency the FWC Alabama, Louisiana, El, you know, every every state has a, a voting member that's placed on there from that agency, and then all the eleven other members are <clears throat> uh, are placed by governors. They're governor governor appointed, and uh, they have a term of four years. And there's a rotation of them. You know, you can just like a city council or anything. They don't wipe out the whole council at one time and right. put new ones on. There's a a rotation. Uh, some of them. Some of them are at large. Some of them are designated commercial seats, and uh, some of them are dated recreational seats. Charter people are, you know, included in the recreational. So um, it's it's a it's it's a it's a it's a very eclectic body of people, you know, because <laughs> they try to have representatives that have, I guess, vested interests from different points of view. Yes, at the Gulf Council right now, we have an over population of recreational representation there okay and they're not necessarily charter we have one charter out of the 17 and we'll say 11 because those are the ones that change because the state the state depending on where the state is on on a topic they can very well be for uh they're they 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 try not to be so partisan but you know they sell recreational fishing licenses right so, so they tend to lean that way just because of the inner workings of of the anglers they represent but right now we have like one commercial and we have one charter out of the 11 oh wow changing and it's a it's a big problem that we've been speaking to the secretary of commerce office about and the national marine fisheries the southeast regional office in st pete we've been talking to them about it and they understand it too unfortunately you know go, or you know, as it goes, the governor sets a, a, a short list, and the Secretary of Commerce selects a, a person from that short list. So it's a multi-pronged approach. We're we're trying to work with the governor's offices to make sure that we get a more balanced council, and then we're also working with the Secretary of Commerce office of appointments and trying to make sure they understand the need for uh, proper representation of all stakeholders, because. Uh, to put it in perspective, in the red snapper fishery, private recreational anglers, uh, we all, well, we all, the recreational fisheries out of the 49%, but out of the 49%, 42% is charter. So that's 58%. 58% of the 49% is private rec. So technically, the private recreational angler makes up one third of the, of the red snapper fishery in the Gulf, where commercial is is a little over half right. and the charter is is the smaller user group of the three but in uh, the smallest sub user group of the recreational fishery but we have nine representatives on the council at this moment that are for private recreational fishery and just in the hot button issue red snapper fishery they only make up a third of the catch do uh i mean have the commercial fishermen been kind of bringing up do they feel like there's an issue with this too, or do they feel like their their fishery is a little more nailed down and it's not as uh, as big of an issue? No, because they're still subjected to to the the will of the council. They they are concerned about it too. Uh, one thing in you know through the IFQs and all the turmoil of understanding all that in the past, there was a little divide between everybody. But as we've as we've as we've evolved, it's become very apparent that commercial and charter fishermen make their living on the water 
and that kind of solidifies us in a in a in a family or family unit almost. right um a brotherhood there, but there's women in both fisheries so i don't want to make it sound <laughs> bad but but a family unit you know that we we share similar interest and we and that similar interest is sustainability accountability because our bottom line of our business models depend on it right like i said if it, fishery crashes you know they can go play golf or they can a private recreational fisherman can go play golf or he can go hunting or he can go on a hiking you know we still have to operate within a fishery that's not a hobby so right that, that kind of solidifies commercial and, char- and for hire together on a lot of topics it's also interesting too that there's so the commercial fishermen have had to do like vms and trip reporting and all that for a long time so they're like you said they're weighing their fish they're passing through all these checkpoints it's very nailed down we know what they bring in Mm. um and since the sector separated for red snapper for recreational and uh for hire we've also kind of come under the same situation it's evolved into we have we report our our poundage our, our fish that we catch our trips we do all these declarations so what we catch well what the charter fishermen catch and the commercial fishermen catch is more accounted for than the recreational side yeah and and so you know sticking with red snapper for the sake of this discuss uh, this part of the discussion um so when we sector separated it was clear you know it was clear they were the, the states were talking about doing a weekend fishery and they had non-compliant seasons with the feds we were federally permitted so we had to adhere the feds basically had to let you know had to wait and see what they set and then adjust everything else off of what the states were setting so it was just and then and what had happened is they were they were figuring out and we figured out but they were figuring out how to systematically remove the for hire fishermen from the recreational fishery because we had to adhere to these sta- these higher standards set forth by the msa because we were federally permitted so they were like they were you know we were going to the state meetings and screaming you know you're cutting our throats by setting these super long seasons and not kind of playing on the you know same playing field to where we all have equal access and states like florida were very receptive to that they florida tried to find that balance why other states had smaller fleets that weren't so represented and they just blew into it you know they would just do whatever they wanted or thought they could get away with basically so when we sector separated you know, we weren't quite in the part where uh, charter boats were turning in data at that time. We weren't doing that. Was in 2014, and uh, we had a few more years before we could get ours online. But headboats have been given data through the Be- the Beaufort Headboat Survey, which incorporates Mid, South, Atlantic, and Gulf headboats, and we've been doing that on paper for 30 years. And about 10 years ago, we went to an app on a phone that we could turn it in. So, so headboats have been doing it for a long time. Was that mandatory or optional? It was mandatory. Okay. If the headboat, if you had a federal permit and Beaufort Headboat Survey had a set of metrics that would deem you to be a headboat, and that would have to do with your, it had to be over 15 passengers. You had to charge per person the majority of your trips. You know, you had to be a individual ticket sale right. seller of it. So they had some metrics, but then they would notify you and say. You were deemed headboat, and then you had to turn in these trip reports. And back then, it was legal-sized paper with all the fish species, and you had to fill out every trip, one of these 
long legal papers, put your trip metrics at the top, how long, how many passengers, blah, blah, blah. And then you had to go down and write how many fish you caught, how many threw back, yada, yada, yada. So it was very, and then you would be stuck with a stack of papers for a port agent would come by like once a month and pick up as many of, you know, whatever you had. And uh, so the headboats were kind of in that anyway, they, you know, they kind of saw that first off headboats were high capacity fisher fish uh, uh fishing effort because of the amount of anglers we took on the boat compared to charter boats um put in perspective one one of my six hour trips in the summertime equals 10 six hour trips on a six pack boat so they were finding you know they were they were doing that so that they could get the best bang for their buck as far as getting effort and harvest data from the for hire industry i think that uh, that it seems like there's Change, change is hard and I know that it's been a few for a few years it was optional for the rest of the charter boats to do this but they kept saying you know it's going to be eventually mandatory you're going to have to do this reporting it's optional now but you're going to have to do it um, I think last March was the first time that it was they were going to start enforcing it this is mandatory this is what you have to do and I know it is a pain and there's a lot of at least there was i'm sure there's still some resistance to it um but i think it seems like it's a pretty important thing as far as so we can say look this is this is exactly what charter boats are catching yes yeah so we you know the one thing about data collection that everybody had the complaint about was that they were tired of being estimated they were coming in and they were taking a small percentage of of, uh, of a survey sample or dockside sampling and then they were extrapolating that data out and anybody that's on a boat knows if you're 100 miles from land and you're five degrees off you're probably 60 <laughs> 70 miles away from where you want to be when you get to land right. so you know it's a, if you don't have if you don't have a good solid data set and you have very little amount then you know as you extrapolate that there's a lot of uncertainty right. in the data because of it and um talking about kind of the origin of how we got here and we got separated we've been having a june 1st federal red snapper season open since i don't know for 15 years now i think 2008 is when it first started um and we've had many different length seasons Uh, i think around 2014 about the time that sector separation happened we had what a nine day season one year nine day was the 2013 2013 okay so looking at a three-day season in 2014 going forward that's okay that's right that's what we were looking at because like you were saying the the states are managed separate than federal so when msa was passed they said look we we want to claim these territorial waters for fishing out to 200 nautical miles but states you still have your right to manage your waters we're not trying to manage your waters we're just trying to do a fishery conservation zone get a hold of this situation um so from the beginning states still kind of had control over their waters whether it's you know here in florida we have nine miles alabama has three miles yeah so all of them have three miles except in the gulf except for florida and texas right florida on the atlantic side has three miles right okay so so it had to do with whatever you know it had to do with the body of water and what that state deemed that they wanted to do you know texas and florida big states they wanted as much as they could where alabama mississippi and louisiana claimed three at the time and that's probably because they you know when they're looking at it those managers were looking at the amount of resources they had to right to protect those waters and and to manage those waters so i think that had a lot to do with it 
they've tried to they've 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 kind of done they've passed stuff in the past when it came to red snapper that they extended those out to nine miles so it was congruent with florida and texas um they ended up over overruling that regulation with with amendment 50 when they went to state management out to 200 miles of red snapper so when when amendment 50 passed it kind of it didn't matter because the federal government was conceding management of the red snapper fishery for the private wrecks to the state. So it didn't matter where the state waters were in, in the red snapper fishery, the states had have control through lines drawn on a map that all agreed to it out to 200 nautical miles in the EEZ. Okay. We've been all over the place. We have know? been all like, over I, the place. I know. I'm like, I like tried to bring it back to Magnuson at one point, and then we like shot right off again. So was, I, I like we're, it though. I like we're finding. Yeah, no, group. no. Where, where do you think we should go? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I mean, so on the first one, you wanted to kind of talk talking, about MSA, right? right? Talk at, about his, the Gulf MSA. Council and sorry, we we went all over the place. So we've got yeah, MSA in the 70s, mm-hmm. the 80s. They're they're making these fishery management plans uh it seemed like in 1990 a whole lot of changes really came into place that's when a lot of a lot of regulations came that's when a lot of size limits came into place that's when they shortened fishery uh fishing bag limits like uh, i think in the 80s they said amberjack to three fish in the 90s they went to one fish uh red snapper got their first haircut of seven fish i think in 90 it was 92 early yeah because yeah. i think in in 84 they did the the refish fmp in 84 and that was the, yeah. they said a 13 inch size limit that was yeah. the first size limit there yeah. was and i'm sure people were like oh my gosh yeah. Yeah. um and and then uh yeah they started making it was a seven fish bag limit early 90s then it went to four in the i think it was either 99 or the early 2000s the the state went to a four fish and the and the feds did too right and something else I, I thought was interesting backing up again we're kind of bouncing around mm-hmm. um so when they first passed msa highly migratory species were not included in that mm-hmm. right that's right um which i mean i get that there is an extra layer of difficulty managing them because of the nature of their migration so tunas were not included until i think 1990 when like billfish were they made a billfish yeah. fmp in the 80s um yeah and a lot of that had to do with the swordfish so the swordfish were getting depleted by the longliners uh it was 83 when they did the coastal migratory pelagics it was uh it was in 85 when they developed uh for the swordfish because right. of the popul- Rest- because the restaurants were right. in the and the longline fishermen we're not discriminating either you know they don't they don't have the discretion somebody using a rod and reel they were just massacring right and and nobody and again nobody understood the science of the fishery right it wasn't a, a you know, thing they were trying to hey let's get rid of it's all not these like they were all flat earthers you know and was <laughs> right. like oh this is oh yeah you just keep coming you know? we're just gonna keep catching them because they keep coming but it, it was more of you know they're like they started seeing reductions in right. what they were catching and the guys are kind of like you know the the people are like hey we're why didn't you why aren't you bringing more fish and they're like well this is all we're catching right and then that kind of was like whoa maybe, maybe we should do something about this maybe we should look into this because i don't think prior to that that they really foresaw having to do an fmp for swordfish well and the thing is is that you know in, in the last 30 years it's not just the regular you know the regulations have changed because the amount of effort that has changed oh, yeah. in this fishery that's applied to it 
when you know when i was a kid and you'd go out there you'd see other charter boats and you'd see a couple recreational boats you know and and it just there was not this inundation of this massive fleet of fishing boats coming out of destin where now on opening day of private recreational red snapper fishing you go out the pass and i'm dodging people trying to just get into the deep into the open water i mean we're talking about a fleet a navy that would just it would terrify a small nation if they were worship you know what i mean like it <laughs> yeah, was, they were coming just, at you you come around the corner and you see more glass than water you know right. fiberglass than water and you're just like wow so you know as as the as the amount of effort exerted on the fishery has changed so has the amount of attention and regulation and i think that we're trying to catch up I say we, and I mean the government and the scientists and the science of the fishery. We're we're trying to catch that up to the level that where we feel that the effort's at. Because you know, at some point there's going to be too many lumberjacks and not enough trees. It's interesting too. You're talking about you know the recreational side has really grown. Uh, when they first split the red snapper again as an example, fisheries uh, 51% commercial, 49% recreational. Um, they did it, it was in, I think, the early 90s, and they based it off of the catch from, like, I want to say 79 to 87, some kind of time frame in there, yeah. because that was the best of their ability. They could tell, well, recreational guys have been catching 49%. You know, commercial guys have been catching 51%. If things were like they are now, and it had been a free-for-all, you know, I, I wonder what kind of weight it would have been split yeah and i'm not sure you know the, the, another thing they got to take into consideration with this is the social the social the social part of the, all this and that's the fact that not only has the effort and the fishermen exploded in numbers but so is the population oh for sure so you know protein and food chain and restaurants and being able to go buy your own fish and cook it at your house that has to play a part in this too you know because we 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 get lost in the stakeholder part of it whenever you see just commercial private rec and for hire people at these golf council meetings you know that it's hard for people to wrap their head around but the private recreational angler the people that can afford a boat that's fifty thousand or more and go fishing is, is a small percentage of the population I, I'm, I'm sure people can afford it but at the same time what, I, what i'm getting at is that we're talking about like maybe the top 20 percent of the population could afford right. could afford a, a boat of of, of a, a deep a blue water boat that could go out there and and prosecute the fishery, where the commercial fisherman probably accounts for more like seventy percent of the nation of they stakeholders. Could, right, you they know? could go buy those fish. So so you know that's 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 like two hundred million people compared to thirty right. million people. So that, I think that I don't. It, it's interesting because they use those time frames because they want to they want to add the element of historical participation and current participation you know because uh, it's not fair it wouldn't be fair for commercial fishermen or, or any sector to maintain that domain that dominion on the fishery if it's all changing but when you talk about commercial fishery and you in you're not biased about anything. You have to add in the social, uh, the, the the part of the social uh, spectrum that do not fish, but that's their fish. Right. They have you know? the whole nation has the right to those fish. Exactly. It, it is everyone's fish. Um, and and talking about the increase in population, the increase in demand, um, 
another thing that was done with the MSA is they created a program to kind of limit some of the access, like it's at least in federal waters. Um, I think when they first passed MSA, it was like a discretionary provision that if y'all wanted to in your your FMPs and your plan, you could make a system where people have to buy permits in order to fish in federal waters. Yes. Um, and you see that now when you hear people talk about, are you a federally permitted boat or are you a state boat? You know, mm-hmm. in the 80s, I think they first did it in the 80s with the coastal migratory pelagics. You had to get a federal permit in order to fish for those fish. Um, and then somewhere around 90 i think uh, somewhere back then they started doing commercial fishermen need to have the same permit mm-hmm. um shortly after that following were, were refish federal permits and i think these were also all based off of historical income right you had to show that well you had to show that you were participating in the fishery uh you know some of these things these permits were were issued because they were a metric to be able to determine the actual amount of people in the fishery or what was being prosecuted in the fishery when like uh the the charter and headboat permit uh when it was developed you know those permits have baselines so you had a boat and they came in in 2003 and said okay you're you, you know you have a 10 passenger boat here is your 10 passenger federal reef permit that was not just to that you know that was it wasn't just a cap the amount of fishing effort that was going to happen in that sector but it was also to have a firmer grasp of how many people were actually in that fishery because before they had the permit they had no idea how many boats were in the fleet that had 10 passengers 15 passengers how many head boats were in the fleet so when they developed this it was it wasn't it wasn't just permits to limit fishing but it was also to be able to establish effort Right. When they first opened it up, it wasn't limited. They were open access, right? Such as the private recs are today. Right. So you could just go and get your federal permit. Um, and then eventually over time, they started, you know, putting moratoriums on them. You know, we mm. may not need any more effort than this out there. And that's how you ended up with these limited access permits. That's right. And that's, well, and that's what they were doing when they created the IFQ system. So people were going out there and massacring snappers. And then with the size limit, they were because of the timeline that they were doing it and you know the constrained time that they had to catch these fish they were not doing healthy fishing practices of venting and and these fish you know handling the fish properly so there was an overcapitalization of the red snapper fishery and the commercial fishing at the fishery at that time you know they wanted it was it was basically to limit how much you know how much was going on because they were going out there and they were flooding the market with fish and then the market would starve during the other 20 days of the month. And so right. as soon as the fish market opened up, that first the first two days of the 10-day season, the 10-day derby, you were getting X amount of pound. Where by the 8th or ninth or 10th day of that 10-day of that season, you were getting 30 40% right. less because the market was saturated. Right. So they wanted to sustain Because then you had people going out and stuff that was unsafe and... And they were getting paid less, you know. So the fishermen or businessmen that were involved with it was like, we don't want all these highs and lows. We need something stable. Right. So I don't know how we got back. <laughs> I don't know why. I sound like a commercial red snapper fisherman, don't I? Like, it's very interesting, though, <laughs> watching the, the, the prices go up and down and stuff. And like at the end of the year, you know, there's trends that 
Yeah. Price goes down for fish for Christmas and, well, and, and all that's, that. And <laughs> the reason why is because people have fish left over from IFQ and they're trying to, because you don't get, it's not like that rolls over. You right. know, it resets. So at the end of the year, you'll see people making two, three trips in a row in December trying to sell their catch. But, you know, in essence, that's not what it was developed for. <laughs> the fish market's like, I don't want any more. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then the price goes down because all of a sudden you have this influx in fish. But, there's a lot of determining factors. Was there three hurricanes in August, September, and October? That right. Was the docks knocked out at the fish houses and they weren't able to accept fish because they had nowhere to pull up to? You right. know? Did they have air? Con- did they have powered for refrigeration? You know, there's so many things that can. Is it down in South Florida? Was it a red tide event? Did an oil rig blow up? I mean, right. like all different things can vary on why those fish didn't get caught. And people are trying to, but that was not what it was developed for. It was developed to have a stability in fish. You know, right. people weren't like if in the IFQ. If you if you had shares of IFQ and the fish price was down at four fifty a pound, you weren't going. When it got back up to five and five and a half, five and five seventy five, you would leave to go Good fishing. Time to go. You know, so it was that was what it was developed for was to have a stability in the fishery and cap the capitalization of it. So when they, how many? Is there somewhere around what a thousand charter? It's eleven. I believe it's eleven eighty. And then there's some historical uh, captains' permits. People who did not have boats at the time but could prove that they were active in the fishery and wanted to buy boats. It was a path. The historical captains' permit was a path in for people at the time that were heavily in the fishery but did not own a vessel or permit. And they've made it now where they can transfer that to a regular federal permit. They right? made it to where 30 of them could. 34 of them could, I believe. So, but those 34 had to be active in the fishery, you know, cuz there's something like 200 of them. Was it a specific 34 or the first 34 come? No, no, no. It was the 34 that met the the threshold. Oh, that met okay. Did. That uh here locally we had two or three guys that had uh, that were operating their vessels on historical permits and the reason it came up was, was like hey man what we call the graying of the fleet the aging of the fleet and some of these guys are having health problems and if they got put in the hospital and their family depends on the income of that boat he can't even get someone to come run his boat because he'd have to be on there with his historical captain's permit which wasn't foreseen at the time the whole idea was that these people would eventually be able to use those permits and and now and the Gulf Council has passed it now to where permit permanent permits will be issued for the 34 of those people that were utilizing the permit in their business. Well, it, it still keeps the fishery at the same level that it was. Before. Yeah, it doesn't change. Other, the only thing it does is it protects the person who was who was a historical captain in case of injury or sickness or you know just having to you know. Some a family emergency and he had to go out of town in the summertime. Well, his business wouldn't make a, a penny if right. he wasn't on the boat. So that was kind of the purpose of it, and that passed with unanimous. That was unanimously passed at the Gulf Council because everybody could wrap their head around right. that. They, these aren't people. All these people aren't going to get a windfall profit of these permits that are going for thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars a pop. It was the people that earned them. Similar to whenever they did the class one and class two of IFQ, like there was a. Uh, there was a there was a, a date that they set that was in the that was already in the past and then they had to meet these metrics to be eligible so there's around somewhere around 1100 uh that's charter and headboat federal do you know how many just out of curiosity commercial i don't i think in the gulf there's somewhere between 200 and 300 
300 permits. Okay. Reef permits. Okay. It might be a little bit more than three. I couldn't, I don't know right off the top of my head, but I know that it's in the two to 300. All right. So range. substantially more federal yes. for hire. Yes. yes. Gotcha. Well, and, and substantially more anglers for that mode, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, so that that's the, they, they, when they did the moratorium on the charter permits, it basically, they started the, they got the permits going to help with the data and, and figuring out what was in the fishery. And then as the future rolled on, they went back and they kind of said, okay, here's the date. You know, if you're in there, then this, then you, if you're active in the fishery to this point, then you are now going to be issued a permit and it's going to be moratorium. So we cap the amount of effort. So, you know, whenever you, whenever you talk about fishery management, you know, you hear a lot of people downgrade charter fishermen, commercial fishermen, because, Oh, they kill too many. They kill way more than I do. I just catch a couple. They're also the most highly regulated fishermen in the in the in the southern in yeah. the southeast. You know, these it, we're we're constrained. We're we're picked on by right. what some people say. You know, by by having to adhere to more stringent management and stuff. But you know, those those efforts led to greater stewardship of the fish, which has given us all something to fight for oh yeah we have a huge vested interest of charter fishermen commercial and and two how many red snapper have you caught in the past year (laughs) personally oh personally (laughs) i don't fish for fun anymore (laughs) uh, that's what i'm saying i i I go deer hunting for fun i don't like you know after working being a head boat captain for over 15 years and being in the fishery since i was 10 i get a greater joy out of watching people catch fish that look on their face that I had when I was 15, 16, the biggest grouper they ever caught in their life, the biggest snapper that that's to me, that's, that's what it's about for right. me. I, I don't just like anybody that was exposed to that much fishing, especially that much good fishing back in the, you know, at that time, right. Uh, compared to now where we, you know, we kind of beat down these fish stocks just because of the sheer uh, explosion and people taking up the hobby of fishing. Uh, even more exasperated by COVID nineteen, that it's just it's great to see that. Like I, to me, catching a fish, I I could I could never catch a fish again and be just fine with it and enjoy watching people. Yeah, catch it fish. does seem like there was even more. You know, everybody gets stuck inside. You hear people talk about it, but then everybody kind of turns to the outdoors because oh, they're yeah. like, "Oh man, this is awesome." Yeah, COVID nineteen <laughs> was the first time I got a turkey hunt in like over ten years. Oh yeah, because usually in that's spring break, and the only time you get time off in spring breaks when the weather's crappy and you don't want to be chasing a mm-hmm. a thunder chicken then. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. As far as the the decision making process, what the Gulf Council actually does and and how it all goes down can you expand a little bit on that yeah so you know is so there, there's different procedures for different things but you know as you discussed earlier the the main goal of the gulf council is to develop fishery management plans and or make adjustments to those plans uh, those are called framework actions and uh, those modificate and modifications and stuff but the 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 Gulf Council is there to initiate fishery management plans. They're supported by that regional area. For us, it's the Southeast Regional Office. Their staff, uh, the Gulf Council has a staff of uh, scientists and anthropologists, economists, anthropologists. I can't ever say that right. I think that's right. Anthropologists. Yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> so they have a staff of, of different people from different backgrounds, economists, fishery science people uh, at the Gulf Council. And they work in, in they work congruently to develop uh, the will of the council. The, the council, the Gulf Council is similar to like a city council. You know, they direct staff to create documents uh and then at the next meetings they'll they'll create them and they'll compile the data on guidance given by them whether it's very detailed or very vague and then the process begins with a, a scoping document you know this is the topic this is the purpose and need this is different management alternatives this is the history of the management so they, they you know and it, and it becomes and it becomes a very arduous process because there's just so much that has to be considered because it's not just a, a user group it's all stakeholders have to be uh, considered in this which is why they have economic impact statements and stuff like that uh, after they go through scoping then they'll go into the development of it uh, you know and that development will be uh, debates on what management practice they want to use uh, we talked about uh, red snappers and them using time series. What time series of data do they want to use that they feel best reflects? Sometimes they'll be like, "All right, we're gonna we want to use these two time series, but we're gonna use 50% of this one and 50% of this one, and and find an average, you know, and weigh those." So it it, it can get complex, but they're basically they they work to find a solution for this that best represents what we what we're at now and where we've came from and they also implement the the history of the management's real important in this thing because they don't want to relive history they want to make sure they you know learn from their mistakes or build on their stepping stones so after it goes through and that's usually the longest part of the process is the development of the amendment then if they they'll take it out to public hearings so then the gulf council will decide um, it might be a, it, it's usually they try and do a sweeping of the Gulf to cover all anglers through the Gulf but if it's something like gag grouper they don't catch a lot of gag grouper in Texas so they go they'll go they'll do it mainly in the eastern Gulf because that's the eastern Gulf fish I saw something the other day I think they're about to do some stops for gag grouper aren't they yeah. Destin is one of them coming Destin, up yeah it's that, yeah I think it starts in Alabama and it's basically okay. going all the way around to the okay. Keys okay. you know which is the geographic reach of that fishery that fishery operates in clear water on limestone outcroppings and sand bottoms they they don't they don't necessarily deal with mud too much which is what you have a lot of mud bottom up west of the river that's where you'll find snappers and stuff a lot of snappers aggregate in the mud uh, they have a high, you know, lower predation rate because the water is not as clear. But, you know, groupers are different. So groupers, it'll be a geographic thing because groupers will aggregate on the on the uh, they'll spawn on the on the on the edges, and then those those eggs are carried inshore to the estuaries, and then the fish will develop and grow in the estuaries, and then so so whenever you get so it'll be geographic dependent on what fish and topic you're trying to what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, so after they go through that, they'll then the next meeting they will report back what they've uh, a summary from each of those meetings, those scoping meetings or those hearing the public hearings around the Gulf, and that'll further give the the regulators uh, more information on what the stakeholders would like to see out of the fishery, so they don't have to go through this process again or redo the process because they didn't have that input. 
So once it goes to that, that after after that meeting, and they will they'll open the document back up for changes, and if the everything's okay or it needs some changes or people want to see more, it'll it'll extend that timeline of the process. But then you'll go to final action, and usually on final action, that's like their last chance to have a say or stop it, or they might get some anecdotal evidence of something that they want to incorporate in the document before it goes to final action. So there's a lot of intervals where stakeholders have a chance to have input with the regulators. And then once it goes to final action and it's voted on, if it's passed, then they uh, give editorial rights to the Gulf Council staff to codify the text, and then the text is submitted to the National Marine Fisheries, and then once uh, they've created this FMP, this fishery management plan, and they submit it to the agency, the agency then does a review, making sure it meets the criteria of Magnuson, it doesn't violate national standards and and things like that, and then it'll go into rulemaking, which will then be posted, and then it'll give time again for stakeholders to apply input on their desire or lack thereof of that of that regulation being put in place and barring action from the secretary of commerce they will it goes into law right it it does seem like there are a lot of places and steps along the way where they'll open it up like 60 for 45 days or 60 mm-hmm. days we're welcoming public input on this even when it gets to the higher levels i think they what at one point put it in the federal register and then yeah they say you have x amount of days to to give your input about it yeah and and that's why they do and you know that's why they do it because they're giving us every opportunity to praise it kill it try to try to alter it try to point out things to it um it's kind of tough because in that in that you know when it goes to the when it goes to the federal registry you're talking about the entire nation at that point has the chance to weigh in on it so one or two people sounding off about something does not quantify a huge majority you know right if it's but, something you're really passionate about then yeah you need to speak yeah. up <laughs> well and that's why we get involved in the process you know and that's why it's important sometimes i go to these gulf council meetings for the dcba and the cfa and there might be just like one thing on the agenda that directly affects us but that doesn't mean that we're not talking with the people and talking with the staff and working on a multi multitude of things you know like this last meeting it it had to do uh with uh, they were developing the the new rebuilding plan for amberjack well we were talking to the staff about gag grouper red grouper red snapper like we you know it's a constant thing and you it's it it bogs people down because of how glacially slow it is but at the same time you have to maintain that relationship you have to keep talking to them about it that's how you learn of changes you know you don't want to like wake up one day and see a fishery bulletin and then be like hey guess what right we're closing this right. and then people are picking up the phone like why in the world are right. they closing well, we've been working on this for yeah you know, this long or whatever. and it's like ah man we've been trying you know we've been you know and and some people ask and and we send out emails through dcba but you know again they can get lost in the mix in the summertime and stuff and that's why like i think this podcast is going to be a really great thing because it allows the fishermen to operate their boat which we operate our boat for hours and absolutely either listening to radio or listening to music or listening to people talk on the radio and this is a great opportunity for people to be able to get educated on a subject without having to 
to read they can just listen while they do their job right so. right I, I hope it gets out there and that <laughs> people enjoy it um it, it looks like too during the process are a lot of the stuff's open to the public right like yes. some of these workshops uh, and almost everything is open to the public uh about once a meeting maybe three or four meetings a year there's five meetings every year with the golf council they'll have a closed session a lot of that has to do when they're selecting members for advisory panels and stuff like that and, and it's good to have that closed session because it allows the council people to speak speak freely without you know they're trying to find a good makeup or balance and if they're sitting there saying oh this one guy is kind of a problem or this or this guy is these two guys are from the same town and we already got this town represented and stuff you start to have people get mad you know because they think they're cherry picking over them but it's the council's it's the it's in their purview to decide who their advisors are and where that representation should come from so there there is closed sessions but everything everything uh that has to do with where a stakeholder it's all open I think one of the things is it's supposed to be transparent, right? That's the whole point of it. And a lot of it even, are there some of the stuff, do they do like webinars or where you can like tune in online if you're not actually there? Yeah, so they were doing webinars before COVID-19, but man, what an explosion that created. Uh, the you know Google Meet and Web and WebEx and Webinar is their is their platform they use for the actual council meeting because of the, uh, the ability to handle so many people because you look at it during COVID and there was like a hundred people signed into the webinar and now COVID's over but there's still you know 30 40 50 people that are signed in most of the time to these webinars and it's people that can't travel or had something come up and they've also during covid they uh, started allowing virtual testimony where you could log in you could log into the webinar but they had a different phone system that you would call in and listen through your phone and then they would unmute you when it was your turn to speak and that was pretty cool because you know during covid we were fishing down here and I didn't go to a council meeting for about a year and a half, but I listened to every single one of them and I got to speak to every single one of them. And now that COVID restrictions have lifted and everything like that, they've maintained that because they realized that they were getting more response from the private recreational community because those guys didn't, you know, wasn't their livelihood. They, they could take off for a couple of days and go to a government meeting where it's important to us as fishermen to do that. So it was good. It, it allowed for more recreational uh, anglers to become part of the process. You know, I, I don't, I would never want to stifle anyone's voice because I wouldn't want mine stifled. And it's a good thing. It's, uh, I think it's led to more of them being educated on things that might be politicized that they're getting information on and they're not getting the correct information because the somebody has an agenda that they're listening to so it allows them to really listen to what's going on and allows them to uh not have a broad brush paint their interest and allow them to become part of the process so talking about gathering information do you do you have time to maybe talk about how they get a lot of this data well i think a lot of it a lot of it's catch data off of the charter boats and the and the head boats a lot of it a lot of it comes from uh the commercial side because you do not have a discriminated catch and i mean that in that there is a there's no high grading going mm. on you're not if you went down and you 
pull data just off private wrecks who want to catch a big fish. There's nothing wrong with that. But they want to catch a big fish, so they might be high grading. And you go down there and you start met, and you start taking samples of just private recreational fish, then you're going to think that there is an extreme amount of these big fish and they're all being harvested. You know, that could skew the data. Where commercial fishermen, because of their indiscretion, uh, as long as it's legal, it's coming with us kind of thing and getting paid by the pound, it shows a relatively more broad picture of the fishery in general. Uh, you could take commercial data and be like, okay, there's, you know, there's a lot of this age class of fish being caught, you know, which means that probably has a, that, that, that age class, <clears throat> that, that stock is definitely doing good because we're seeing a progression where those, where the, that age classes, the harvest levels are getting better and better age class wise, where, you know, you might be taking recreational if the fisheries decline and then you're going to start seeing their catch levels go down. So I think it all works together and it's all important because you definitely need snapshots of each user group that's out there, uh, utilizing the resource but I think that you would not want to just take one or the other I think you have to have a culmination of all of them to get an accurate depiction of what the state of the fishery is they have uh, like the agencies will actually go out there too and do some of their own sampling as well right? a lot uh, well a lot of them go through the state so a lot of states do when you see the state people they're doing that for the feds are getting that data too they'll uh same with law enforcement like there's no national marine you know we we just now got some NOAA agents some federal fisheries agents but for years NOAA and, and the National Marine Fisheries subsidized FWC, Alabama, and these other places, and they deputized these guys to be their representation. You know, they didn't have they didn't have the infrastructure of boats and you know all this stuff, so they were utilizing the state's infrastructure for for enforcement, and they were and with that they were they were able to do their job you know get it covered but but they didn't have that and we're just now starting to see where federal agents uh are starting to be placed around the gulf and that's a good thing too because that that's their main goal is federal fisheries where you know if there's a problem like we've had over in Apalachicola with the oysters and the and uh the scallops and stuff during scallop season they're all over there checking license for scallops they're not out here checking you know there's not as there's not as much of a force out here doing federal fisheries work so so it's a it's a good thing that they have their own but the states science and enforcement uh, a lot of it is subsidized by the by the feds to look after theirs too okay so they're getting information from from all over the place and Lots of public testimony from people that are out there doing it mm -hmm. and all kinds of good input. I think you have really kind of stressed the importance of being involved, um, kind of paying attention to what's going on because they're asking for input. Yeah. They want your opinion. They want to know what you're seeing out there. Um, and. If, if you don't speak up, they may not hear something that could be pretty important in the decision process. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's so many different ways to do this. Uh, you know, we got a lot of a lot of guys, like, in the DCBA, they're like, man, I don't want to public speak. I don't want to get up there. What if, 
what if I go up there and say what you've been teaching me, and then all of a sudden they ask me a question, I look dumb, you know, and that that's always been a concern. Public speaking's not an easy thing. Uh, luckily, I'm a loud mouth, and I don't care what people <laughs> think usually, but to my detriment, you know. But uh, but I think it's important that we do that that everybody stay involved in the process. If you don't, if you want to write the Gulf Council, there's multiple ways you can you can reach out to individual council members. You can in, reach out to a there's a uh, email address that when you send it to them, the Gulf Council staff sends it to all of the council members. Um, there's there's definitely ways to testify without having to speak. If you're not uh, if you're not a good writer and you don't really like to speak in public, that's what people like myself and Gary Jarvis and Mike Eller and Scott Robson back in the day uh, were all presidents of the Destin Charter Boat Association, and that's and and people came to us and would tell us what they want and make sure that we're all on the same page or. Uh, you know, and that's that's what's cool is you know some of us are good at other things and some of us are are better at others and and by having us be spokesmen for the group, you know, as a member of the group, you have a right to come up and talk to me about making sure that your voice is heard and to be honest with you, some of the, some of the great ideas and some of the things that we've worked on has come from people that were pretty quiet in the whole even in the association they didn't talk a whole lot but they were like hey. What about this? And you were, and I'd be like, oh, let me think about that. And I'd go back and I'd be like, damn, I didn't, I never thought of it like that. That's a great idea. Or it might not work for what they're talking about, and I'll explain to them why. But then I might be like, well, that idea is pretty good for this fishery. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. it takes a village. And I think uh, those of us who are not worried about speaking in public and not <laughs> worried about looking dumb. I think that you know we serve a purpose of making sure to be the voice of our fleet, and uh, you know a lot of the stuff that when when we have a DCBA meeting before a Gulf Council meeting, I go over the agenda of the things on the agenda that are that are important to us coming up, and things that we've been talking about and want to work on for the future because you can't you know you can't work on something if you don't bring it up. So I think it's important that they utilize us as a tool and. If you have a concern or you have something, an idea that you haven't heard people talking about, it's really important to speak up. I mean, you know, I have people, oh, this might be dumb, or I have a stupid question. It's like, eh, you don't have a stupid question. You're just, you're not caught up on the topic. So it's just a question. And don't feel dumb for asking them. I've asked plenty of questions to people way smarter than me. And and I think that it's it's great that we have this, and I think that it's important for them to stay involved, even if it's just in a merely educational standpoint. Because then, when your customers ask you questions, you have better answers. You look more informed. You look professional. And you know, when to me, it's really important that when the tide rises, all boats float higher. And I think that it's really important uh, that you make sure that whether it's saying, hey. I agree with everything you just said or hey I agree with everything but this or hey I think that's a dumb idea I think you're going the wrong way this we got we want to hear that as the leadership because we want to know which way to drive our train and if we don't if we don't if we if the, if our membership doesn't feel that we're accurately accurately representing them then there's a breakdown in leadership and that's not what we need because we definitely need it to be a unified voice. We don't want five different opinions coming out of Destin. We want to sit down and all of us kind of think not just about ourselves, but about the fleet as a whole.
and what's good for the fleet and what's good for the fishery so and find that balance and then if, and then then when they start hearing comments out of Destin and it, unless it's a very contentious topic they're hearing a unified voice and they know that we we've, we've been thoughtful in this and thought this through so uh, speaking of membership in a unified voice do you want to talk a little bit about if there are any you know charter boat operators out there who are not a member of dcba uh that are maybe interested in all this but aren't aware didn't know how all of it worked i mean y'all are open for membership right yeah i mean there's a little criteria uh, we haven't updated our bylaws really much from the past but a lot of it back in the day was you had to be a charter boat operator in the destin area which would include San Destin. I got. I know uh, we've had members from Panama City before that believed in what we were what we were talking about. So uh, I, I would say the Destin area would be Pensacola to Panama City, and you know that that it be somebody with a captain's license and somebody that's you know right. that's involved in our fishery. And um, you know we're working on things. We've juggled the idea of like an associate membership where you don't have a vote but you are supportive of the industry you know you might be you might be somebody in destin a, a restaurateur or something like that that makes a lot of money off having the charter fleet right behind their restaurant or something that want to become a member and we're working on developing a like an associate membership and stuff like that but if you want to get involved and you want more information on a specific topic uh destin dcba at outlook is the dcba's email okay and uh reaching out to us with questions or wanting to know more about it or possibly becoming a member that's first line of doing that there you go well you can reach out there and um if you want to follow this podcast we'll try to do some you know some social media some posting keep things up to date east pass podcast um and you have anything else you want to throw out there i appreciate you having me on oh, Rachel. thanks for talking i'm looking forward to, to talking more all right it was some fun back in them days, I tell you. You always remember the beautiful, light southeast winds? So I thought, well, I'll come back when the groupers run. You know, how can you uh, completely go over a lifetime in an hour? <laughs>